Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. You know Dasher, Dancer, and Prancer, and Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, and Blitzen. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 50. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Headquartered, the book on the monkey's solo career has been turned in and should be out in February or March of 2020. Same with the Warren Kramer book, Crossing My Fingers. I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency and the TTV Underdog Scrapbook and the Mad Book. Plus, I just turned in an article about Dick Tracy's 90th anniversary for Hogan's Alley magazine, and an article about Harvey Comics giveaways for Craig Yo's upcoming book about comic book giveaways. And I'm still working on an article about Harvey Mystery Comics of the 1970s for Back Issue magazine. Our guest today is the premier expert on all things Rankin Bass, the company responsible for a number of fondly remembered Christmas specials, including Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and The Year Without a Santa Claus. They also had a number of theatrical releases and Saturday morning TV series. Our guest has written a number of books about these shows, including The Enchanted World of Rankin Bass. Here he is, Rick Goldschmidt. Yeah, on the phone today, I have Rick Goldschmidt, who is the author of The Enchanted World of Rankin-Bass, one of my favorite books. And I just wanted to know how you... Well, well, basically, tell us about yourself and how you got interested and involved in the world of Rankin-Bass. <laughs> well, um, it started out in college when my degree was in illustration and I went to Columbia College, Chicago. And I started talking to Jack Davis and Paul Coker Jr. because I loved their work. And that was the the style of art that I was kind of getting into was humorous illustration. And, and then I realized that both of them designed all of the Rankin-Bass shows. And it kind of took me back to my childhood, especially Mad Monster Party, mm-hmm. which I had remembered seeing on this. this bizarre local channel in Chicago called Channel 44. Mm. (laughs) They were showing like a lot of public domain and forgotten TV shows and things like that. So it really brought me back and I I was curious, like whatever happened to Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass, there was nothing written about him at all. Mm-hmm. And um, they really couldn't tell me much about them either, Jack <laughs> Davis and Paul Cooker. So they they gave me his number in in Bermuda, and I called them up and and told Arthur that I wanted to do a book, even though I had no intent for doing a book. Period. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Send me two chapters." <laughs> so. So I went over to a friend's house, and this is before PCs in the home, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, A friend of mine was a a video editor, and he had a primitive computer, and I basically typed up the chapters at his home and then cut and paste them with images that I had collected, 
and sent that to Arthur, and he liked it. And the next thing I knew, he sent me his whole life story on a little micro cassette. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I just went from there, and I started scrounging up everything I could find, you know, at toy shows and movie conventions and, and things like that, because this was before eBay. Mm-hmm. This was when you went and got the toy shop newspaper, and you went through that and, and found collectibles, and I was looking for new adventures of Pinocchio and Tales of the Wizard of Oz, because they heavily merchandised mm-hmm. the early Rankin Bass shows, and and I just went from there, and, and ever since then, I've <laughs> been doing the same thing, you wow. know, scrouching up material, doing interviews, and appearances and things like that for my books and mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun and it, it's um, led to a lot of projects that I thought never would have come in my lifetime right so it's been a lot of fun so when did that first version of I have the revised one in front of me the first version of Enchanted World come out that was in November of 1997 okay and um, it actually what happened from that release was it spawned the merchandising that we see everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, there was nothing on Rankin Bass's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty the Snowman, except for a record album uh, that was a giveaway for GE products. And... Um, CVS Pharmacies was the first to merchandise and a company called Stuffins did the beanbag dolls and they called me up and told me the idea came from my book (laughs) um, that he was on a plane to a Japanese toy fair and saw that there was never any merchandising and then CVS well, I guess Stuffins proposed it to CBS, and they liked it, and they went from there. And I got all the beanbag dolls in advance of them being released week by week hmm. um, because they wanted my opinion of them and so forth. So <laughs> it was kind of a cool uh, <laughs> genesis of um, merchandise and, and, and all this attention to Rankin Bass. But really always and even to this day what what I get the most satisfaction out out of and I know you probably do too with your books is giving the attention to the creators yeah the the people that really made these shows last 50 plus years are the ones that put it all together and that tends to get forgotten about because in today's world it's all about, um, you know, the quote-unquote product. Right, or and, the characters, um, yeah. <laughs> and these big companies just, they don't care about the history. They don't really even care about the fans. They just care about the money. Mm-hmm. And that's that's always a bad thing. And it takes people like us to bring the attention back to the actual creators and a lot of them are gone now right so you really have to speak for them you know Mm -hmm. um i knew tony peters who designed rudolph i knew uh gene muller who was romeo muller's brother who wrote the special 
I knew all these people and they trusted me and we became friends and you know that relationship is really all that's left of what was on their minds you know and and the history of it is you know passed on to us so i think that's the most important thing is to to really give the creators the credit that they deserve right is there anybody you tried to reach out to that either a refused or just you were not able to get a hold of when you're initially starting the books no everybody was very nice and very agreeable now jules bass was always sort of anti-social oh okay and i found that out from everybody <laughs> and they would all say rick it's not you it's him okay so he he does he never wanted to participate really even though he went through my book the first release of my book and uh, arthur brought him in uh, occasionally and tried to bring him into you know various things but overall arthur started the company mm -hmm. from scratch and arthur really was you know the driving force behind the whole thing and you know he made the things happen and and uh, to get him involved was very important because you know <laughs> right whenever he was involved everybody else wanted to, to help out okay. and uh yeah because I, I was always wondering about that with jules because he's still around right and you know he just seems to be standoffish but if you're saying that's the way he is well that's the way he is <laughs> uh, from the beginning Arthur <coughs> was me. the voice mm -hmm. of the company and the president mm -hmm. you know there's a ceo and there's a vice president and arthur was the ceo and i didn't know that mm -hmm. you know at the beginning i thought it was an equal partnership but you know, it, it, it was good that I was able to reach out to Arthur because Jack Davis and Paul Coker only dealt with Arthur. Oh, okay. Um, so that's how that happened. And, you know, Arthur was the one who paid them. Right. <laughs> and Arthur was the one who hired them. Mm -hmm. So okay. um, it, it was, you know, there was a lot of Arthur, I can say that. Yeah. Unfortunately, because I've seen it, uh, you were able to interview him and things like that because there's video interviews as bonuses on some of these Rudolph DVDs and things like that. <laughs> right. And um, Well, the nice thing was, um, you know, Arthur participated in, I think it was the 2001 DVD releases. And I always talk, because people always ask me, what are the best releases and to this day those are still the best releases uh, these big companies ruin everything and it, it i just saw today somebody sent me that the little drummer boy is coming out on blu-ray november 17th or something like that mm -hmm. but it's not restored or remastered it's Absolutely. off of a 16 millimeter print it doesn't say that but that's i know that's the fact Hmm. <laughs> it's missing sound effects it's missing dialogue it's missing a lot and 
rather than them come to me and help them restore it and everything, they would rather just stick it out there and make the buck mm-hmm. without any care or attention to what they're actually doing. And they did this last year, too. Mm-hmm. They initially involved me. They initially said they were going to do these things right, and then they did them wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, why? Mm. Why are you doing this? Because I'm going to let people know that you're doing this, and why would you do that? Now, this but, uh, little drummer boy uh, is the version that's been out on just regular DVD. Is that still a 16 millimeter print? Or? Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's the same print, just thrown onto a Blu ray. Got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> just ripped to a Blu ray. Uh. And there's no bonus features or nothing. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I have a lot of stuff here right. that could make up bonus features. And it's it's a shame, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's, it's terrible what they do with these uh, properties. That's the word I, right. <laughs> I was right. looking for. They, they, they consider them properties, but yet they don't care about them. Right. Um, you know, look at the Wizard of Oz. Now, the Wizard of Oz is like Rudolph in some ways. You know, there's a all these the island of misfit toys and all these characters people love. And the Wizard of Oz is getting all this attention, you know, 4K, restoral, all kinds of bonus features, all kinds of great stuff. Mm-hmm. But Rudolph is put out like garbage <laughs> continually. Wow. <laughs> and um, it's a shame. You know, I have the ending of Rudolph in color from 64. This is the one where the elf is throwing the packages with the credits of the sleigh. Right. Um, Universal, the company that took over the, the properties, didn't even care that I have that. Hmm. <laughs> didn't want to restore it didn't want to add it as a bonus didn't want to do nothing and there's a lot of people, bad people involved that claim they own the rights of these things when they don't Yeah. Um, you know, the Romeo Muller estate and the Tony Peters estate is the same thing as the Stan Lee estate and the Jack Kirby estate hmm. uh, when it comes to Marvel and Disney so there's going to be some changes at some point, but <coughs> I can't say when that'll be. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about ownership a little bit, um, because I know you talk about it in the book, but j- I just need a little clarification, and it's been a while since I've read it. I, I don't have it backwards and forwards. Uh, sure. First of two questions, what is the difference between Videocraft and Rankin Bass? Well, Videocraft started out in the 50s. And um, primarily what it was, was commercials, kind of like how Jim Henson started out, Hmm. uh, Wilkins and Wilkins and all of that. Rankin Bass were doing short commercials for products. Um, Pine Wax was one of them. I have some pictures from that in the Arthur Rankin scrapbook. And the Arthur Rankin scrapbook kind of goes into the genesis of video craft into Rankin Bass productions. Um, so they kind of transitioned over from video craft to Rankin Productions, but it was slow. 
because okay. they still had used the name Videocraft, um, you know, everything through the 60s. Right. Um, even though they were known as Rankin Bass Productions. Um, so I think it was sort of a, a slow transition out of advertising and into pictures and television. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, <laughs> they, they, they wanted to be recognized for their names rather than videocraft. And a lot of people don't know that the, the shows were all financed by General Electric. Mm-hmm. Um, they started a company after Rudolph called Tomorrow Entertainment, and you'll see that in the credits of all the Rankin Bass shows. But they didn't take as big of a credit as Rankin Bass did, mm-hmm. you know, with the TV logo at the end and so forth. But they were financing everything up till 1974. Mm. So that's why Rankin Bass and Arthur and Jules didn't actually own the shows. Okay. They they were all financed by GE. But it really gave them uh, free reign to come up with on the creative side and not have to worry about finances for a long time. So that was a good thing. Uh. Well, that actually answers my other question, I guess, because the other one was, why does, well, now it's NBC Universal own part of the Rankin Bass stuff, and Warner's owns the other part, but that makes now that makes sense, as GE actually owned it, and they sold the stuff they owned through 74 to right. Classic Media, was that first, or is it Broadway or something well, like that? Or? It, it was Broadway Video and Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. And I think the reason that happened was because they did the Coneheads um, in the 80s. Yeah. And I think Lorne Michaels learned that that GE had these shows and was getting ready to get rid of them, oh. you know. <laughs> so um, he bought them, and then they started out kind of rinky game, you know, when they... When they put out the videos on Broadway, they were really cheap releases and really bad, you know, prints and so forth. And then (laughs) classic media came out of Golden Books. Yeah. And Golden Books actually did a good job with them. They were the ones that got Arthur in to do the introductions and put a few bonus features on and so forth and they were always in contact with me and sending me all the the Rankin Bass shows they had in their vaults mm-hmm. and uh, I liked them and so did Arthur and then Classic <laughs> Media came in and took Rankin Bass off the DVDs hmm. a name hmm. and I was at Arthur's uh apartment in New York when he got copies of those and he called them up and told them, you know, take the you know, take my introductions off too. Yeah. You know? That was all a contractual thing where he did them for them putting the name on and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So ever since then it's been all downhill right. with yeah. DVDs and Blu rays, you know, it's yeah. it's sad but 
I have to say it's the same thing, and you know I've done Harvey stuff, and they went through the same ownerships, and right. Total Television with Underdog, they've gone through the same ownerships, and people tell me, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? And it's like, I don't know. It's all the big NBC Universal conglomerate now, and I don't know what they do. <laughs> so, I used to have contacts, too, so it's like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. It's, you know, you and I know what fans want to see right that's that's what we know we get emails people get our books they understand you know it's a labor of love you know they want to see all the good stuff all the rare stuff but these companies they don't really care (laughs) they don't care what people want to see they just want to make money right and that's it that's why things like Willie McBean and his magic machine has not come out on DVD. Any of the rare Rankin Bass shows aren't going to see a Blu-ray and DVD release because they're not going to make money right. in their eyes. Right. So, well, I so, mean, it's it's really sad, but... <laughs> well, some of them that haven't seen release, uh, I'm kind of curious about. I mean, it's like... I, I get it that there's no real holiday connection with like the Ballad of Smokey the Bear, but you still got some name recognition with uh, yeah. James Cagney. So it's like, and you could easily say from the makers of Rudolph and Frosty and blah blah blah. Um, right? Is, is do you have any insight about that? Because that's the same library that NBC Universal owns. Is there anything yeah. holding that up or music rights as it usually it is? It could be with that particular one, it could be the fact that the government owns Smokey the Bear. Oh, okay. And there's there were some hoops Arthur had to jump through initially to even do that. He had to go to the president <laughs> Lyndon Johnson oh, and wow. get a letter so that James Cagney would do it. Right. because um, he, he you know, made him jump through hoops, but um, there's some legal things in regards to characters nowadays, and a lot of times that's why things aren't done because they're afraid. You know, even to to use pictures sometimes if they don't get all the rights or the the, the people that are in the pictures to sign off on them, they won't use them and. Right. I mean, it's, it goes through ridiculous steps to get things done now, whereas back in the day when Rankin-Bass actually made these shows, it was just on a handshake a lot of times, right. <laughs> and the contracts were only two pages long. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the contracts, because I have a, a lot of them, they don't even mention merchandising yeah. at all. So that's why... I knew Earl Hagen, who wrote the Andy Griffith theme song and and so many others, Dick Van Dyke and that girl and all of them. Right. And he signed a contract in the 70s or 80s that had nothing to do with streaming, DVDs, Blu-rays, and all that. Yeah. So that's why his estate is suing uh-huh. right now. I see. Um, and pretty much everybody could do that. <laughs> right. Know? <laughs> because the contract they signed had nothing to do with, you know, streaming and DVD releases and so forth. So it's it's just it's amazing how things have changed. 
Right. It is kind of amazing, though, what you said about the toys. I mean, when I was a kid and they'd replay Rudolph year after year after year after year, and they still do, um, I I would have killed for anything with Rudolph on it back then. We're talking early 70s, and it's like... Now it's like things seem to come out every week, which is great. But I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't care as much anymore. I'm like, I know, <laughs> it's, it's overkill too. And yeah. you know, for a long time there was generic Rudolph products, right? You know, through the '40s, '50s, '60s, and that's all owned by Robert L. Mays' family, mm-hmm. and. um Johnny Marks, his brother-in-law, wrote the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm-hmm. And what those families own is the generic Rudolph character, not the Romeo Muller, Hermie the Dentist, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> the Bumble, uh, <laughs> Yukon Cornelius. Those were all created by the Romeo Muller and Tony Peters, and that's the point I'm trying to get across with my history and, and writings and so forth is, you know, that <laughs> the wrong families are gaining money from the, for the wrong reasons. Wow. You know, it's sort of a charade <clears throat> um, right now, and, and I don't like it yeah. because I've been seeing all this merchandise everywhere and seeing that horrible Broadway musical thing traveling around the country and <laughs> they do a puppet show in, in Atlanta, which I was just in in August. I was at Dragon Con and I did five panels and actually the puppet people were in my panels and I explained to them, you know, um, that licensing is not all legal. <laughs> you know, because you're using the Romeo Muller story and characters, right? And he's not even listed in the program wow. as the writer. Yeah. So it's you know, if I wasn't around <laughs> catching these things, they would get away with murder, and they have been getting away with murder. But wow, um, that may change. Yeah, I didn't realize it was. I, I mean, I I knew the history, but I didn't know that there was so much, uh, you know, ownership issues, as it were. <laughs> so you know. yeah, def- definitely, and it's it's especially with Rudolph, you know, yeah. and that's the big one. Yeah, that's the big special that breaks in millions of dollars in ad revenue, probably when it shows on CBS. Now they're going to show it on Freeform too. Right. They never did that before. Mm-hmm. So who knows how much that's bringing in, and who knows how much the merchandise is bringing in. Mm-hmm. You know, Menards had a a blow mold this year that I picked up for my table. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I look at the copyright, it's the, the wrong stuff on the bottom. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you see this stuff all over the place. A lot of it looks like junk, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that may be why you're not, you're not so much into it anymore at this age. Because uh, if it was cool stuff, I mean, they made some cool things right after my book came out. Um, a castle and a big Charlie in the box and all these cool things. But, right. But the merchandise has kind of gone downhill, too, like the Blu-rays and DVDs. Right, yeah. I'm happy I got the earlier editions. Like, I have the 
the the golden books edition of, you know and then i do have a later right. edition you know, just because and i did get the blu-ray last year which does have some new stuff on it but a lot of it i admit is kind of substandard you know to yeah. put politely and it's like wow you know with the blu-ray they had so much opportunity to put even more stuff and it's like because i know you also have that uh rudolph book that specifically talks about rudolph all the way through and right. uh, which is a great book too <laughs> um what was I going to ask about Rudolph? Um, you said you had the color footage, but I think at the time the Rudolph book came out, you said only the black and white footage existed. Uh, well, so how did you track it down to get the color? Well, my friend found it. Um, he found a, a network print, mm -hmm. and it needs to be um, color corrected and transferred. Yeah. So he's been kind of hanging on to that for you know an opportunity to do it right yeah um and invest a good amount of money into the restoral of it rather than just transfer it and right he doesn't really want to put it out right um so we were going to put it in our in our Rankin bass documentary um uh, when we do it yeah. but um I need to find someone who can actually do a good job on that. On color Because I've yeah. talked to several people about it, and um, they haven't really followed through the way that they should. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So eventually someone's going to want to do it and do it right, but... Right. We will be back after this message. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <coughs> The Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. And now back to the Fun Ideas Podcast. Is there any other, like, lost things that you know about other than unreleased stuff? I mean... Like, example, uh, the Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy show, was that actually shot, or was it just figures? That was shot. Um, All the way through? And, it was like a full show? Yeah. Okay. And um, I've been trying to locate that. I I reached out to Candace Bergen a long time ago, but I didn't know about all the relationship issues that she had Ooh, yeah. um, with the family and so forth, so... Um, I don't know who actually has a copy of that um, or can release it or <laughs> knows anything about it. It's probably in storage right now. <laughs> but I did find, and it'll be in my new Frosty book, I did find the whereabouts of Mortimer Schnurd, oh. <laughs> the animagic puppet. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so I got some pictures of that from the museum that's housed that. Um, and I'm putting it in my Frosty book, but cool. um, hopefully that'll turn up one day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know it was early on in in the Rankin Bass history 
It probably, from the pictures I had, I put it around 65, 66. Right. And um, that was shortly after Rudolph aired for the first time, and I think Edgar saw that and loved it mm-hmm. and wanted the same thing done with Charlie. And Arthur, when he came over to my home, he remembered the story wrong. <laughs> and, and I have it a videotape. He he thought that what happened was they they shot the pilot, and Edgar got sick and passed away. But we know he didn't pass away until after he did the Muppet movie in right. the seventies. Right. Yeah, he did he a lot of stuff lot after longer. the sixties. He was in the Waltons uh, pilot movie and things like that. So yeah, he was an actor right. throughout the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe what happened was maybe he did get ill yeah. for a while, and then he he didn't want to do it anymore for whatever reason, or he wasn't happy with it, or whatever. Yeah. But Arthur couldn't remember exactly why it didn't happen. You know. Now, the is that supposed to be so a, cool? Was that supposed to be a series or just a a, a one shot special? I think it was going to be a series. Oh, okay, and. Um, he also said they made the mistake of they went out to Beverly Hills and stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel, him and Jules, mm-hmm. and they came up with the concept and wrote the special in a short amount of time. And he said they should have taken their time and stayed there for a long time because <laughs> that's what they thought they were going to do. So maybe they rushed it too much and it didn't turn out as, as well as they had hoped. I don't know. Right. You have to piece these stories together. Right. From what little they remember. Right. You know. And of course, that's it's, way it's, far back in the '60s, early '60s. So yeah, I get it. Right. <laughs> and and when I went to Arthur's home in Bermuda mm-hmm. and went through the museum that I helped open a little exhibit there, mm-hmm. I saw things like. An Amos and Andy special they were going to do. Oh, wow. There was a script there and artwork by Paul Coker and, you know, all the work they did with Shirley Temple. And, you know, then I started to realize, you know, there were a lot of pro- projects they started yeah. that never got made. And, and, and I'm sure they can't remember everything. They, they just, they were always on to the next thing. They right. did an Arnold Schwarzenegger thing. Wow. <laughs> because he was a friend of Arthur's in Bermuda. Mm-hmm. So I, I saw like a cell of, you know, he was involved with the the fitness program when Reagan was in office, I think, and they were going to do some kind of a, a Saturday morning thing, I think, with him. And, I mean, it just went on and on and on, and, they really didn't care about the past, mm-hmm. Arthur and Jules. They cared about the next project, right? what they were going to do. So I, I think a lot of the history side of things got lost, and, and they did throw stuff away. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, I know that story from <laughs> talking to the Harvey and Total Television, too, so I'm like... Eh. <laughs> oh yeah. Just have to move on and just say, oh, yeah. 
you know, yeah. I don't know if you had any of the creators say this, well, we didn't think it was going to be worth anything, and you just hit your head and go, no. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and um, I don't know. A lot of the puppets I still get asked about animatic figures all the time. That's uh, fascinating to most people, like, what happened to them. And, and most of them stayed in Japan. Okay. Most of them did. They only had like a handful that they would display in the office. Um, some of them were at NBC for a while, mm-hmm. and and the stories that float around about Rudolph and Santa, a lot of that was sensationalized oh. <laughs> from from what we talked about. You know, oh, the the secretary had them. And, most of them got wrecked and they threw them away and Rudolph and Santa are the only two to su- survive but I know of where three Santas are now mm. and Rudolph's couple Rudolph's and you know there's a bunch of puppets in Japan and they don't talk about that right my books talk about it but not right not in those articles that float around at Christmas time every year. Right. How many figures did they make of each? You're saying like two and three Santas and stuff like that? Yeah, well, for Rudolph it was different because they wanted to set a display up at the NBC building in New York. So they had a whole set of figures that were just used for publicity. And uh, I, I believe... You, you see them pictured on the record album cover in 45 sleeve of Sam and and Rudolph and in the publicity photos and things. Yes. That those those were made just for display. Oh, I some see. Of them. And then, you know, they used, usually they would use two puppets mm-hmm. um, so that they could film scenes simultaneously and you know the puppets wear you tend to wear out too as they're animating right um but a lot of times they only used one because i used to own a few from the first christmas and octavia was one of them she was a little girl who was lucas's friend and in one scene she was wearing one set of clothes <laughs> and in the last scene she's wearing um she's in the Christmas pageant as Mary and both sets of clothes were on my puppet (laughs) wow (laughs) so like underneath the Mary outfit is her regular outfit so they only had one of her and I actually found the girl who did the voice uh, Hillary Momberger who was the voice of Sally in uh, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So, I wanted to show her the puppet when I was out at the Shag store in in Hollywood, but she couldn't make it (laughs) to the event. But um, those are funny kinds of things you you learn as you go along and and do this kind of thing. Right. Uh, It's fun to, to investigate all of that, you know. Right. Since you've owned some of them and seen them, of course, um, for those who haven't seen them in person, how big are most of the puppets? Well, they they can range from about 8 inches to about 
20 inches mm. you know um the father time was very large mm-hmm. um and when i watch Rudolph shiny new year i i look for that you know like how large he is he, he's <laughs> almost as big he's bigger than santa <laughs> Rudolph, mm-hmm. but santa's pretty big too you know <laughs> um they're they're pretty large size puppets they're not tiny little figures like some of the action figures that that right. we buy you know um, they're bigger than that hmm. so um how about the bumble did, people... did you see the bumble ever no oh. but i read in, and it's in my he was about 22 inches oh wow tall. <laughs> so in the case of his scenes when when he's in the scene with the other characters there's miniatures of the puppets um made oh okay too so sometimes you have to look for that because a lot of times he's in a scene by himself mm-hmm. or um and and also that's an, another thing about sam how they inter inter integrated him into the the special was um he he was in scenes with the other puppets, you know, mm-hmm. except when he was outside the window, and he you could see them decorating the tree inside. Right. Um, other than that, he's all by himself. So he he probably was at it last, you mm. know, and that's how they got their lives last. Mm. Um, so I always look for these things because it's interesting to see like how it was put together and and you know how the characters interact too. Right. And and now I look because <laughs> I've seen the puppets in person and I know the mouths and the eyes were paper mm-hmm. that were drawn on um, some of the expressions that they make especially in Santa Claus is coming to town where you see Chris's teeth and um, when he makes like you better not pout right right <laughs> um, <laughs> you can really see like the the cut paper okay and um, the different techniques that they use to create those effects so that's how which, they did that was the paper it wasn't like you know the old puppet tunes the George Powell puppetoons where they had a completely different head, or did they do that? Not so much. Okay. Uh, with the rank of bass puppets, they okay. they changed out the eyes and the mouths and and all of that. But uh, there's a similarity between the two for right. sure. Right. And uh, the George Powell stuff, primarily from what I've learned, was done by Wa Ming Chang. Mm-hmm. Who um, who also did in Chicago? We we have on television every year. Um, Hard Rock Coco and Joe and Susie Snowflake, <laughs> and his company did those. Oh, he started his own company called Centaur, and they did those two stop motion shorts. So you can definitely see that Wa Ming Chang was behind a lot of the George Powell stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a very similar style to the Rankin Bass work. So 
I don't know if he knew the animators mm-hmm. from Rankin Bass, but he may have. Right. And on these figures, how, how durable are they? I mean, they might be less durable now, 30, 40 years on, but back when they are made, were they made to take a little bit of a beating because they're moving them around so much? Yeah, I, I think so. And um, really, the only things that happen to the ones that I've seen are flecks of paint will chip off mm. from the nose or whatever. The hands, they have wires inside the fingers, and those held together pretty good. Mm. You could still animate them. Um, the Smokey the Bear puppet had a lot of wear and tear to him, where the guy who originally owned him, he was showing me all the movements. <laughs> I was like, holy cow, like he's just, you know, moving everything around the feet and the hands and the arms. And I thought, man, <laughs> this guy knows his stuff, but... Yeah. You don't want to be doing that with something that's like 50 years old. Right. <laughs> and, and he had some sort of a deflated stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was some kind of a a balloon inside that popped or something, and the stomach was kind of sunken in. Hmm. Um, screen novelty zones him now in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're going to restore everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping they'll, you know, restore it and let me know and, and show me pictures of it and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I told them about a few tree elves from Marco that were, I could have bought them. They mm-hmm. weren't that expensive, but I didn't want to buy them because they had so much damage to them. Mm-hmm. And I knew screen novelties could restore them. Yeah. So I told them about it, and they bought them, and they're going to restore them. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, that's what I care about. I, I care about, you know, that these things survive. Right. And that they can be restored properly. I don't care about actually owning them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't need them on my uh, refrigerator uh, <laughs> sitting up there getting dust. Right. Uh and, and even to bring them to places, it's it's difficult because yeah. you have to take good care of them and right. you have to watch them, and you know. So yeah. I'd rather not own them. Actually, pretty awesome responsibility. I got the only Rudolph in the world now. Right. <laughs> I know you said there's multiple ones, but still. Yeah. <laughs> um, what made the Rankin and Bass choose? to do some of the specials and some of the TV shows with the figures in the Animagic format or to do it in flat animation? Why Why did they go back and forth? And what dictated what they would do? Like Frosty, for example, is flat animation. Was it money or something else? Good question. No. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's a variety of, of reasons. Um, it was money in a way. Mm-hmm. And it was the look in another way. Um, Arthur always said with Frosty, he wanted it to look like a Christmas card. Mm. And Paul Coker Jr. was actually doing Christmas cards for Hallmark for a long time. And he continued to do that even till recently. Yeah, Most of his cards were in the foreign market. 
but that lettering style that was used for everything in Frosty, that was the lettering style he used on the on the Christmas cards. Right. <laughs> and and his look, you gotta say, when you look at Rankin Bass's cell work, which is very different than uh, Total Television and and the shows that you've written books about, mm-hmm. it, it had a it had a style to it that, like, as soon as you saw it, you knew it was Rankin Bass. Yeah, it wasn't Disney style. They they weren't like copying anybody. They they were kind of using the Paul Coker look and running with it. Yeah, you know, that's what I thought so, too. Even before I read Matt or anything like that, I said this, these all have kind of the same look. And it was either the, the the drawings or the music that led me to believe. I didn't even know necessarily the name Rankin Bass early on, but right. later on I figured it out. Oh, this is this studio, and this is what they do. You know. <laughs> And, and then they um, they went into doing um, the Festival of Family Classics, which which I saw everywhere uh, as a kid. I saw them on Channel Nine during Frazier Thomas's Family Classics show, mm-hmm. and then uh, teachers at school would show them. Mm-hmm. You know, like for whatever holiday it was or whatever they were teaching. So. I mean that Paul Coker look was was a lot of the reason that they switched over to sell for some things, and then it was financial too. Mm-hmm. What they did was they they hired a variety of studios. It wasn't Rankin Bass didn't house their own animation studio in New York. It was Mushi and Toei. Yeah. And um, and the puppet studio in Japan, mm-hmm. and they would just kind of before this was ever done, like they do now, source out to a foreign company for financial reasons. But to see that there's a difference between what Rankin Bass did and what companies do now. It's not strictly financial with Rankin Bass because. Arthur loved the Japanese culture, mm. and he spent a lot of time there. And in fact, he went back there when the tsunami came in, I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whenever that was. Mm-hmm. And he reunited at a party with a lot of the animators. Mm. And he said it was a love fest. That <laughs> they loved working on the shows and he loved working with them and he had a guy, a guy that he was very close to named Masaki Izuka and I met him at Arthur's Memorial in Bermuda and I met him in New York too when Arthur was honored in 2003 and he basically took Masaki as another son mm-hmm and his two sons didn't really want to work in the business and entertainment but Misaki became this young producer who who worked on a lot of the later Rankin Bass shows and then eventually he did the new adventures of Johnny Quest and a few other things you know mm-hmm. uh, with his animation studio so Arthur loved the 
culture and the people and and he oversaw the animation work done at Toei and Bushi and and at the puppet studio. So it was different in the way that they they took it there. It wasn't just for financial reasons. Okay. You know, they they also knew they could do the best job. Right. Um, now were all the show, were all the shows done overseas, or was there anything done in the U.S. or in North America? Uh, well, they were all animated there, but the uh, creative part of it, a lot of it, was done in the states because you know it had to be storyboarded and okay. And Paul Coker had to design them, and Jack Davis too, and mm-hmm. uh, the music. Maury Laws, he, he recorded it in England, mm. uh, but he, you know, he lived in New York uh, primarily. So all of the the concept work was done in the States, and then the animation was done in Japan, and then some of it was done in Canada, too. Oh, okay. Uh, the voice actors were in Canada for a lot of the early stuff. Right. And yeah. then they did some of the animation for uh, Tales of the Wizard of Oz at Crawley Studios in Canada and for Return to Oz, too. Okay. So it's. They were an intern. That's why they were called Video Crit International. Got it. Okay. They were an international company. Mm hmm. Um. Now, uh, what was I going to ask? Uh, <laughs> lost my train of thought here. Um, well, I'll just kind of go through a few specials and things like that. Um, you know, like in the early 70s, it seemed like Rankin-Bass, well, they did have a couple 60s shows, but uh, they they seemed like one of the contenders uh, to that they did a lot of Saturday morning shows along with Hanna-Barbera and Filmation and to Patty Freeling. Um, was that... Uh, lucrative for them, or did it, I, I guess I, I know the answer, but I mean, it's like uh, you know, obviously, Hanna Barbera was number one. Did they try to compete with them excessively, or just say we, we'd like to do this too, or what was going on in the early 70s over there? Well, I um, I got to meet Bill and Joe, and we talked about uh, Rankin Bass and. Uh, they they were aware of them, but they weren't really competitive mm. with them, you know, which which I found in- interesting. <laughs> um, and whenever I brought them up with Rankin Bass, it was the same thing. They didn't really have any feelings about them one way or another. Mm-hmm. I think um, the early 70s stuff came from a relationship they had with Michael Eisner, Mm. who was in charge of children's television programming for ABC. Primarily, most of their Saturday morning work was for ABC. Mm. The only one that was on a different network, I think, was the Tom Foolery Show, which was on NBC. Mm. But they had this relationship with ABC, probably from... Santa Claus is coming to town and here comes Peter Cottontail and then the Emperor's new clothes that uh, Eisner probably said you know could you do something with the Jackson 5 or could you do something with the Osmonds or whatever and and that just led one thing led to another and it, 
it continued for a while mm-hmm. to be an ABC thing. And I'm sure they made enough money from it to do what they really wanted to do, which was to get feature films made mm-hmm. um, again for ABC on the Friday night movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they did a series of, of those, the Muted Deaths and the Ivory Eight and Sins of Dorian Gray. That's what Arthur really wanted to do, mm-hmm. was make movies that were going to be like, eventually be the Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. uh, Oscar <laughs> contenders. But he never quite made it there, you know? And um, he was very fond of, of those movies and uh, King Kong Escapes and some of the other things they did, but. No Oscar, um, no Oscar nod for King Kong Escapes. <laughs> no. But, but looking back, you know, that was the thing. And uh, when he got the revised edition of my book, mm-hmm. the 15th anniversary edition, mm-hmm. he said tears came to his eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he was really touched by it because when you look back at the body of work and you see everything they did, which was a lot, Mm-hmm. And most of it was successful too. Um, he was okay with that he would be remembered for Rudolph and Frosty, you know. Yeah. Um, but for a long time, I don't think he wanted to quit because right. he wanted to get, you know, that right. type film made. Right. And that's what led to doing the King and I. Uh, which came out after my book, my first book, and and still trying to get specials on the air. They did Santa Baby, and oh, okay. he, he yeah. was always trying to do stuff. Okay, that was that was one of my questions was. too, because I yeah I have your first edition, and then I have your revised edition. That has a lot more in it, and it has those later specials. But I didn't even right. know when those aired originally that, that it was even part of Rankin Bass. I just thought it was classic media trying to cash in a buck or something like that. I didn't know what it was. No. <laughs> and then you're, just... you have it in the book, and I go, wow, that's real Rankin Bass stuff? I thought they were gone. I thought they ended in the 80s sometime. But um... Well, their partnership ended in the 80s. Okay. Arthur and Jules. And then Peter Battalion stepped in to Jules' place. Hmm. And while I was doing my book, you know, Peter and Arthur were still in the office and they were still trying to get stuff made. Hmm. And that's when, and, and you probably, I don't know if it's in my 15th anniversary or my 20th anniversary, but in one of them. That's why I stepped in after I did my Rudolph book and I said what they really should be doing is another Christmas special with a quality host mm-hmm. like Andy Williams so I got a hold of Andy Williams and he said sure he would do it hmm. and I got Paul Coker to do the designs and I wrote a treatment of it and I said hell <laughs> Danny Osmond was ecstatic when I called them about Rankin Bass and said, 
If it wasn't for Rankin Bass, the Osmonds wouldn't have been nearly as successful as they were. Wow. <laughs> that was his opinion. I think he was correct. And, yeah. <laughs> and they were both in Branson. Andy Williams and the Osmonds, and Andy Williams was the one that made the Osmonds famous in the first place. Right. So I thought, wouldn't that be great if we could do an Andy Williams Christmas special and have the Osmonds in it, where they could look like they did in the 70s, <laughs> do their voices, and, you know, everyone could look young again. And this could be like the the premier Rankin Bass comeback, you know. Mm-hmm. Arthur kind of thought that, you know, he thought Andy Williams was great from Moon River and all that, but he thought people had forgotten about him. Mm. And Peter basically took my proposal and showed it to networks and tried to see if there was any interest in going retro. Mm-hmm. But apparently there wasn't, and, and it never happened. But mm. I would have loved to have seen that happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Santa Baby and um, the King and I weren't as good because it had to go through a whole bunch of processes and focus groups mm. and other people involved. And, you know, that's not how Rankin Bass functioned. Right. It was always like, go to the network, tell them what you're going to do. They give you the money to do it, and you have to deliver it by a certain date. That was it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all self-contained. You know, Maury Laws and Romeo Muller and all that. And, and that's, you know, not the way it works today. And mm-hmm. that's why stuff that comes out today is out for a weekend and forgotten about in a, in a few months. Mm-hmm. Um it's kind of weird, but you know, you gotta give Rankin Bass a lot of credit for what they did because not only were they making money, but they were making things with heart and warmth and quality and stuff that keeps it going for 50 years. Right. Uh, nobody can, can copy that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's They try and you know, all the stuff you see today doesn't even compare with what they did. Right. You know? I think that's across the board. I mean, everybody tries, but, you know, there's too, <laughs> too many too many committees, too many uh, vice presidents, too many producers, where you right. know, it used to be the creators doing it. Um, exactly. I do have a number of questions based on a lot of things you said, so I'll just kind of rattle them off. Um, sure. Did Jack Davis and Paul Coker ever do their own storyboarding, or did they just do character designs? Uh, Jack Davis started doing storyboarding um, on the King Kong show, mm-hmm. but his storyboards were too large, oh. <laughs> and he didn't like doing it, oh, so okay. he stopped. Okay. And that's why other people moved in. There's another name in the credits under his. Okay. Um, Paul Coker never storyboarded. Okay. He always did um, painterly um, model sheets, actually. Mm. A lot of his model sheets turned up. In fact, a guy brought me four of his original model sheets at uh, Dragon Con. 
and he was like, I bought these at a toy store <laughs> for like 50 bucks a piece or something, and these things were gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I, I took a picture of Eon the Terrible and um, Happy the Baby New Year, and then he had a couple from the stingiest man in town that I've seen before. Yeah. But these things were absolutely gorgeous and same with Paul or uh, Jack Davis's work for Ranking Bass I have one of his Coneheads originals and um, just gorgeous stuff mm-hmm. you know Arthur was an artist so he was an art director at ABC so he recognized talent like right off the bat and in fact when he came to visit me that's all we talked about was Jack Davis and and Paul Coker's work and how it translated the animation and this and that. So we shared that love of art mm-hmm. that um, it's kind of hard to describe. You either have to have an eye, you don't have an eye for it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did. He, he hired Hirschfeld for the Daydreamer. Mm. Oh, that's um, right. That's right. <laughs> so I mean. And Frazetta for <laughs> for Mad Monster Party. Yeah. Did you I ever mean, talk to you them? Know, Did you ever talk to them, or were they gone? I by? talked to Frazetta's wife, okay. Ali. Okay. And uh, Hirschfeld, no, because he, I think he had already passed away by then. Okay. I always followed his work, though. Okay. And, um, another person I was just curious about, since we're talking about Davis, is um, Harvey Kurtzman, who worked, for, who created Mad. Basically, uh, he wrote the Mad Monster Party. Did uh, you ever get a chance to speak with him, or is he gone before you started doing research? I talked to him. Um, by the time I talked to him, uh-huh. his Parkinson's had progressed so much uh-huh. that he wasn't really able to say much, mm. and. Uh, and then I went to some interviews. I have some interviews with him. Uh, one was taped with him and Jack at um, San Diego Comic Con. Mm-hmm. And he always like he said that he got paid, you know, like four or five thousand or whatever. And he didn't really care about the movie, and he didn't really <laughs> um, think it was anything great, and. Um, I found out from the actual writer, Len Karabkin, mm-hmm. that he didn't really write all that much, mm. Harvey Kurtzman. He only went through the script and then added some funny lines. Mm. Um, and he, he added, uh, Ber- what is it, Berfitzels or whatever, yeah. that word um, that they call all the, uh, the drugs in the drugstore. Mm-hmm. Came out oh Veeble Fetzers. Oh yeah, okay. It came out of Mad Magazine, mm. and and the title was changed several times. It was it was called Mad Monster Rally, uh, Monster Convention. It, it was called a whole bunch of things for a long time, and I think he changed the title with that question mark. Yeah, because he had that falling out with Mad by that time and that was kind of a shot at them I think right (laughs) (laughs) you you did a book about that one too right right I I don't have that one I need to get that one okay (laughs) but does it talk about everything in there that we're talking about yeah yeah and um, 
you know, I, I've even had, this is kind of funny, Arthur, <laughs> Arthur one time said, hey, Rick, Jules tells me that you're wrong about Frazetta and you're wrong about, you know, the way that all happened with the artwork and this and that. But I knew I was right. Hmm. You know, hmm. because I, I did a lot of research on that. But what happened with Frazetta was his artwork was used without his permission. Yeah. <laughs> and he threw a fit. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he was a big guy back then. He was kind of like Clint Eastwood, mm -hmm. where he would kick your ass if you did something wrong to him. Yeah. So he... He went after them, but it wasn't Rankin Best that made that decision because Arthur was a Jack Davis fan, mm -hmm. and he wanted to use the Jack Davis art. It was Joseph E. Levine that changed the art to Frazetta's Rups, mm. and then Frazetta eventually got paid, but they didn't even use his finished art, which he had done, because I don't even think he turned it in. Hmm. And he put that in, and it's in my book too, uh, a color finish version. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting. Even when I find out the truth, some of the people think it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that was Mad Monster Party the most successful theatrical film, or is it just the most cult no. classic now? <laughs> It's a cult classic, and, it, and, it, and people love it, yeah. but it was never financially uh, a big hit. Okay. Um, the one that was, was The Last Unicorn. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the Last Unicorn, uh, Siskel and Eber gave it a thumbs up. <laughs> I remember seeing that, mm -hmm. and that had a huge cast of great people, just like a lot of their other films did. But critically and financially, I think that was probably their biggest success feature-wise. Mm -hmm. You know, they made a and shiny Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July right. as a feature film. Mm -hmm. And they put it out in the summer. Right. <laughs> and it didn't do well at all. And by the winter, they had it on ABC as a television special. Yeah, I, I never knew so, that. Yeah, I never knew that was a theatrical one until you, your book came out. I was like, oh, they just made a longer <laughs> special, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that one's kind of hard to warm up to. Um, I watched it several times, and I guess there's a better version of it now. On streaming, it's an HD version. Uh huh. And um, there's some funny parts in it with that scratcher reindeer mm -hmm. with Alan Seuss doing his voice. Yeah. But overall, it's it doesn't have the same charm that the uh, the earlier specials have, which is odd because they got a lot of the same talent. Yeah. It just didn't click for some reason. I just think it has no. to do with length, you know. Like if they cut it back to an yeah. hour special, it'd probably be better. Yeah, you're probably right. And same with Mad Monster Party was a little too long. Mm -hmm. um, Arthur had a different cut of that that he liked better. <laughs> uh, so Now, um, 
I guess now Arthur Rankin has passed, so is there? There's no other projects on the books that would be an official Rankin Bass type project, right? It, it would be right. just like those ones that we've seen. You know, there's like sequels to, uh, uh, like the the Miser Brothers and things like that. Are you involved <laughs> in any of those things, or is that considered? No. Canon? Okay. <laughs> no, I. I... I don't know how you feel about it, but... Um, I don't like him. <laughs> I'll just be... Yeah. <laughs> I don't like when... I don't like when they remake everything, either. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of people say, well, the only thing good about it is it brings attention back to the original. Right. But I'd rather they don't do it at all, because it it's so bad, yeah. like, remaking this stuff, and... You know, they've been talking about doing a Mad Monster Party movie for the longest time. Mm -hmm. They had the writers of Analyze This working on it, and I met some of the producers over the years, and, um, you know, it's like, how could you remake that? It's <laughs> What makes it good is the puppets. Right. And CGI doesn't have the same feel right. at all. Right, right. Um, in fact, it's been so homogenized now, everything looks the same. I don't even know if you can tell studios apart anymore. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's there's no originality in Hollywood anymore, yeah. and, and that's sad. Yeah. I think the most original... Uh, you know original... what I tell people? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I do these panels a lot now. So you have to kind of think things out. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing that I tell everybody is this. The difference between Rankin-Bass and, and why it's lasted for 50 years and the difference between today's animation is, think about it, what Arthur Rankin was doing was hiring people that were seasoned veterans. Right. Jack Davis had worked in magazines and Mad and all that stuff for 30 years or 20 years by that time. Right. Same with Paul Coker. Maury Laws did all kinds of records for Time Life, and he worked in orchestras and was on television, all this stuff. What they do today is they're hiring college kids out of college mm -hmm. for $10 an hour that say, oh, Disney's my dream job. Yeah. Uh, you know, or whatever. These people have no experience, no talent, well, some talent, but not, not like these guys. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at two different, completely different things, you know? Um, talent, seasoned veterans, and then students out of college right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's that's the reason that yeah. things are so bad now is you know no season people are gonna hang around yeah um, the only thing I see now that is kind of reminiscent of Rankin Bass and I don't think it was necessarily their intention and it's not US is the Ardman studio who does the Wallace and Gromit and those type of films and yeah, what, what's your opinion of those I mean I'm not really familiar with them to be honest mm -hmm. to have an opinion okay. I've never really watched them too much I don't I don't care for the um, 
character design mm. some I think that's what I, I what draws me in is if it's if I like the character design I'll want to watch it but right. I haven't seen anything that I like as yeah. far as character design well it is true um, their stuff tends to have these little beady marble eyes and big teeth and things like that that's their kind of style right. so I guess if that doesn't appeal to you I get it but I think story wise and concept wise they're probably the closest that could come to the animagic thing that's right. presently done but you know um, they say Leica is too but mm-hmm. all of their films I haven't had any interest in either right um, and, I don't know what it is it's yeah it's that character design that has to, yeah. to grab me, yeah. you know? I mean, I've seen stuff like Coraline and stuff like that, and it's okay. And yeah. <laughs> uh, But, yeah, I get it. The, uh, the character design, yeah, Rankin-Bass did have this very appealing design style. Um, right. That, uh, I did like Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Um, that I really got into. Mm-hmm. And I did like the early Pixar stuff. Yeah, you know, I thought they were on the right track until Disney took them over. Yeah, um, so those two things, you know, were my favorite things of anything close to to Rake and Bass Productions. But right. I don't know. I I'm like at a loss for <laughs> for today's yeah. entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it all gets so I don't get it. You know, it's all the same, it seems like. You know, it's like... Yeah. <laughs> um, Even the Adams Family, which came out this year... Yeah. I was hearing for years that it was going to be stop motion, and it was going to be done by Tim Burton, and it was going to look exactly like the Charles Adams strip. Mm-hmm. And I think they tried to make it look like the Charles Adams stuff, but they went for the cheap jokes and stuff because what I saw in the trailer was not what Charles Adams would do humor humor wise right I'll I'll probably eventually see it but yeah I haven't seen it yet so (laughs) uh, out of curiosity but yeah it it was a little bit of a letdown of what it looked like just from the previews yeah so I agree with you there um uh, you mentioned somewhere along the line, this is total non sequitur segue or whatever, but you are talking about Donny Osmond and uh, Andy Williams and everything. Um, right. I understand from your book is that uh, Donny Osmond or the Osmond family owns that Osmond's show. And if he has such reverence for the Rankin Bass show, why doesn't he ever issue that as onto video? He, he did. Oh. Um, he put a DVD out for years that were at the Osmond Theater. Mm. And I think it had four episodes on it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think he does own the show or part of the show. Um, but I don't know if he has all the masters ah, of it. Okay. Um, so I don't know where that stands. And I don't think the masters were at Golden Books and you know, classic media and so forth, because they were sending me what they had, and they never came across that. Yeah. Uh, But then they never sent me Jackson 5, and then they put that out on DVD and Blu-ray, too. Right. (laughs) So I don't know. 
it's hard to call on that one. But Donnie was pretty adamant about that he owns it, so yeah. I'm sure he does. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's it's just kind of weird, you know, but I had the same struggles you did. It's like uh when I worked on the Underdog uh DVD set and and the Casper set and the uh, Tennessee Tuxedo set, it was like uh almost impossible to find everything. I mean, we somehow managed to do it. And I don't know if you had this issue with the Rankin Bass stuff. They had tons of stuff at Classic Media that they had the visual for but they didn't have the audio for. Yeah. <laughs> and I had all these bootlegs, and I said, I have the audio. It's right here. You just have to match it right. together. And they did. It's amazing they did. But it's like, if I didn't have those, the sets wouldn't be out. And people always wonder, how come they don't do this? And it's like, they lost it. And it just seems weird that they would have lost it. But I guess they do after exchanging I, I, so many hands. <laughs> I have all those sets, and, um, and I think... Um, I'm, I'm, well, I'm grateful to have them. Yeah. And I'm glad. I think they did a better job with those than they did with the Rankin Bass. Yeah. Um, you know, it really surprised me. And, and this really knocked me for a loop because they did a Blu-ray for Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol mm-hmm. that was way better than Rudolph and Frosty and Santa Claus is coming to town and everything. And they got um, Daryl Van Setters. Yeah. That's his name, right? Yeah. And put a little version of his book in there and then they did some comparisons with the with the storyboard art and the animation and you know, they, they put it in a like a hardcover book and everything and Yeah. I'm I'm a huge fan of that special. Um, don't get me wrong, I love it, you know. But it's so much less popular than Rudolph and Frosty and Santa Claus is coming to town. Right. I'm thinking like, why didn't they do those like this and get me involved and put a little book of my book in the Rudolph? And so on and so forth. You, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying? It's right. like, why in the hell did they do <laughs> such a good job with Mr. Magoo and such a bad job with the others? Um, well, uh, I can't. I, I have I no can, idea. I can only speak for the ones I worked on, um, which do have a little booklet with those. I worked on those and wrote. Yeah, them. I like uh, those booklets. The, the whole series with mine was Shout Factory. I was working with Shout Factory. They had, oh yeah. They had the rights to everything, but uh, and they were working with Classic Media. But they said, in you know, to put it mildly, they said Classic Media is a handful, <laughs> and uh, you know that was a polite way of putting it. And uh, you know, so they were basically depending on me to kind of make it a workable thing out of you know yeah. just all these unrelated elements and everything, and kind of make a, a booklet that kind of explained everything in a few pages you know and it's like fortunately i'd already written my book so i could do that and you know it worked but they asked me to do a booklet it wasn't the other way around but i don't know the situation with all those uh rankin bass specials i mean it's at the time when i was dealing with classic media um originally they were like saying yeah we're doing all this merchandising and 
Rankin Bass stuff, you know, Rudolph and Frosty, and da 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 da. And I was actually getting more annoyed that they weren't merchandising the Harvey characters more. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Which is the same thing to this day. They still merchandise Rudolph and Frosty, even if it's crummy stuff sometimes, better than yeah. the Harvey stuff. And I, I don't get it. You know, it's you know, and this is NBC Universal. Um, well, you brought up a good point. Um, I've heard good things about Shout Factory yeah. from a variety of people, and they're like, Shout Factory needs to put this stuff out. Yeah, they need to do a complete box set of Rankin Bass and get you involved and this and that and I think they're right <laughs> that's like, probably the best way to do it and especially if everything hasn't been on Blu-ray that would be the selling point you know something right. new so in some way you could get at least all the uh, let's say 64 to 74 stuff together right. I don't know if you can get it all together I mean Shop Factory works some sort of miracle sometimes like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with all the Peter Sellers Pink Panther films but, yeah I have all those okay but um, Shop Factory was able to get Return of the Pink Panther which was always like the the loose canon of the series because it was right. independently financed and everything and it was always huh. out on DVD on its own but they finally got a blue a blu-ray set out that and the DVD set that has all of them together as they should be because for the public at large they just want to see Peter Sellers Inspector Clouseau Pink Panther they don't care that this one's over here and this one's over here um, right. so it'd be fun if you or somebody but I assume you uh, could get all the Rudolph specials together on one set I know they're two different companies you know and get right. all the frosty ones together the proper way not the frosty returns one Ugh. you know yeah. it's like you know frosty the snowman and frosty's winter wonderland that type of deal you know and I know right. they're two different companies but it just bugs me you have to buy these separate little things all the time you know yeah <laughs> I know they just did the Abbott and Costello blu-ray set of all the movies together and yeah um i think they did some some extra special things for that so that, that that might be the way you would have to approach shout factory um and right. say look here's the deal and this is what's come out and i'm the authority i think it should come out like this and they might go hmm <laughs> and <laughs> they're actually pretty good sometimes like I, I will say on shout factory sometimes they don't get the proper clearances and it just bugs me like uh they did a steve martin TV special uh, collection. A lot of stuff was left out due to music rights and things like that. And I just, oh, yeah. you know, but most of the time they're pretty good, you know. And it's like, um, I think the reason why, are you familiar <laughs> with Rhino Records in the old days? Um, yeah. Yeah, the people came from the old Rhino Records, you know, so before right. they sold out to Warner Brothers. So they care about older stuff and they want to do it right and, and do the right packaging. So. I got to work with Rhino Records when I co-produced the release of Santa Claus is Coming to Town and Frosty the Snowman, okay. the MGM Records, oh, okay. which um, was part of Warner Music Group. And uh, that particular D uh, CD went out of print and was for like 85 to 100 now yeah. because it was done right. 
<laughs> yeah. I have it, fortunately. I didn't know it was trading for that much for now, but yeah. Yeah. I, I snapped those things up in a hurry. Like the, I think also there was like a promotion that went through the post office or something like that. I have that one, too. Did you work on that right. one? Um, that one I didn't, but that was early on, okay. um, before they knew, like, what was going on with okay. all the, the history part of it, but, um, you know, like, um, another thing, I was involved with the Mad Monster Party CD release, because it never came out, period. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, a few years back, there was a vinyl issue. And a lot of people were asking me about that at my panels and things. And uh, for some reason, the company that did the vinyl didn't want good liner notes. So they just got some guy from England to say why he liked the movie. (laughs) And then they didn't use any photos. They didn't ask me for photos or nothing. And they did it all art. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is terrible. (laughs) <laughs> and and then the the the, the um, transfer is not good either. The CD was way better, so it's like, why would anybody want this? But <laughs> people are telling me, oh, I bought the vinyl, and I'm like, the vinyl sucks, you know. <laughs> unfortunately, mm-hmm. so it's 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 weird how these things get done. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody has their own opinion and everybody thinks they know better than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like when you're talking about the merchandising, um, you know, obviously a lot of television stuff and Harvey stuff, if done right, would sell. Right. You know, there's, there's cool characters, there's, nice retro things they could do with them but try to tell that to the people that own the characters and it's like goes in one ear and out the other they don't know what they're doing right unfortunately yeah and then a lot of times they'll remodel the characters and put up (laughs) something that's barely recognizable but they'll slap Rudolph's name on it or something and uh, then that flops and they go well we tried that was it and it's like well that's why you took all the charm out of it Um, well in the case of the Blu-rays last year um, when when I knew how bad they were mm -hmm. and how not going to do the right thing with them I had to put a review up on Amazon to let the fans know Mm mm-hmm and I saw the last time I saw it, you know, it got like 100 or 200 likes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that will not sit well with sales. If, if you're going to try to sneak out inferior versions and people know that I'm, you know, the historian for Rankin Bass and I'm telling people not to buy them, that's going to hurt your sales, right. you know? And they, sh- they just should have done them right in the first place and avoided all these right. problems. Right. You know, now we have to wait another, t- you know, two to five years for another company maybe to buy them and possibly do them right. Right. You know? It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I guess but, uh, the next chance is probably 2024 or something when it's the 50th, yeah. the 60th anniversary of the thing or something. That's all I can right. think of, you know. <laughs> but um, right, exactly. Hmm. Well, I mean, you do, uh, you are a good keeper of the flame. I will say that. And um, uh, I, the version I have of your book here is the 15th anniversary. So you've done a 20th anniversary version, right? Right, right. We added about another hundred. 20 pages really wow yeah the reason we do that is is we want you know we well i in this case i had one guy who was keeping folders on rankin bass at a newspaper Mm -hmm. and he was like i have these folders and i don't know what to do with them i want to give them to you Mm. you know so he sent me everything, and there was stuff in there I didn't have. Mm. Like, there was a a color fold-out folder from Pinocchio's Christmas that, um, you know, the, the channel that aired it originally in Rankin-Bass put together, and it had color stills that I didn't have, so I put that in the book, mm. you know? It's like, I, I'm always finding stuff that I wished I would have had in in the '90s when I did the first version right. that I had in. So, um, you know, that's why we do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it also we gives fans like me a, a reason to buy it again. I suppose if, you know, right. you know, it's if you just had the one book from the '90s and never updated, everybody else say, "Well, that's out of date," you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So it's kind of like the book is on steroids now. Hmm. So how many pages is it? Like this one here, it seems like it's about 200, 300, 300 pages. So how much is it like close to 500? Four, four something, oh, I wow. think. And, and then last year, um, this was kind of funny. With the Santa Claus is coming to boom and the Daydreamer book, yeah. we were only looking for it to be about. 200 pages. Yeah. Kind of like my Rudolph and Mad Monster Party book, but it ended up being 380 pages. Yeah. And, and Wes, who designs the books, he was like, you know, we kind of knew that this stuff. And I'm like, well, let's just do it then, like this. Yeah. So we didn't cut anything out. We just kept going with it, and it just turned into this great big book. So it's almost as thick as the 20th anniversary book, wow. which I find funny. <laughs> you know, because uh, we didn't intend it to be, but that's just what happened. So hmm. if you have all the, it's hard to cut things out. Right. If you have all this stuff, and I just enjoy. Uh, doing it and, and looking at, at these things and, and uh, you know it's fun to, to put it all together mm-hmm. um, are there any plans to update like the existing Rudolph book or is that pretty much exhausted or well I think we um, we put some Rudolph material in the Arthur Rankin scrapbook mm-hmm. and in the 20th anniversary book so if you're looking for updates and that were in Japan. 
because mm-hmm. uh, I covered that in a chapter. We always do a, like, where are they now <laughs> kind of chapter in each book. Mm-hmm. Um, because we find more stuff, and and there'll be stuff like that in the Frosty book too. It's not focused completely on Frosty. It has, like I said, Mortimer Snurd. Um, we found out that the King Kong puppet exists it, mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, a lot of the Willie McBean puppets survived. Mm. Um, so all that's in the in the Frosty book. So when you expand these, you don't take out anything, right? You're just expanding? No. So, okay. Yeah. So if you missed out on yeah. the original version, other than just to be a collector that has everything, there really isn't a need to go back to the older version to get the newer version. It's probably best. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Although, um, <laughs> the, the original original book of the Enchanted World of Rick and Bass in hardcover, Yeah was so limited Arthur Rankin in, in um, classic media bought most of them oh okay <laughs> yeah I don't even <laughs> have that in hardback <laughs> yeah so whenever I see one pop up yeah. and I see like the price on it uh, I I think well maybe it is worth that because it was so limited yeah um, you know and and for a while that they were going for like six hundred bucks oh, at used bookstores oh, wow. and things. <laughs> so, I mean, it it was crazy. But I think the updated versions, the twentieth anniversary and the fifteenth anniversary, mm-hmm. you know, kind of take away from that because they're so much better mm-hmm. uh, book wise than the original. Um, there's really no reason to pay that kind of money for something that's out that's better now right well let's wrap this thing up uh but uh what are your favorites i mean it's like it's christmas season i assume most of them are christmas specials but what are the your favorite Rankin bass projects it doesn't have to be christmas related well i'm a big christmas guy okay. um, we just got a snow here in in chicago and uh <laughs> i've already been getting into christmas watching shows and things and I watched um, Twas the Night Before Christmas on Blu-ray the other night, and that's just magic, you know. Um, there's so many Rankin-Bass shows that have a magical quality to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Santa Claus is Coming to Town is one of those, you know. I put the record on the other day, and when it gets to the part when... Fred Astaire is saying, well, not everybody gets Christmas, and you hear, you know, those characters, the bother, you know, <laughs> all cranky and everything. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, they really did know what Christmas was all about, and mm-hmm. they really did know what putting heart and, and charm and, and, and these qualities that it makes me proud to be associated with um, the shows because I mean what what what's better than that there isn't anything better than that mm-hmm. um, there's a magic quality to them and mm-hmm. that, and that's hard to describe you you can write books and go into the breakdown of you know the writer was Mo- Romeo Muller and 
Tory Laws wrote the music and this and that, and 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 still you can't capture in writing that charm about him. You know that you have to watch him, you have to experience him, you have to have grown up with him mm-hmm. to realize the magic that's involved. Mm-hmm. You know. And I think it's sad that today's generation, I always think about this, you know, with kids being on cell phones and, and not going out playing and <laughs> all the things that we grew up with right. that they're missing, you know, the you know, Tennessee tuxedo and his tails and my good friend Bradley Bokey, who was... Chumley, who right. we dedicate this Rudolph book in, in part to him. Oh, that's good. But, um, you know, this stuff had a ch- magic to it. Yeah. That, that today's society, today's kids growing up, they're not going to know about, unless their parents show it to them somehow and get them involved with it. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not the same. And, um, I can watch anything of of Rankin Bass and and recognize that quality, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Rudolph is always going to be my favorite because mm-hmm. the look of it and and the the songs and and the characters, um, I think they really caught magic in a bottle with that one and mm-hmm. and uh, you know. If you think about it, before Rudolph, before Frosty, before any of the Rankin Bass, which basically tell the story of the characters, Santa and Rudolph and Frosty, they didn't have any personality whatsoever in the <laughs> comic books, yeah. in the songs, in the Fleischer version of Rudolph, in the any of the early renditions of the famous Christmas characters so when you see them now you you go in a Menards or whatever you identify their character immediately Mm. (laughs) and it's all from Rankin Bass Mm. you know (laughs) Frosty the Snowman with his happy birthday and and his lovable personality that wasn't there prior to 1969 you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that—that's the thing I—I I, I most like about the specials is that they brought personality to the to the characters too. And mm-hmm. you know, Santa Claus is is Santa Claus now. We know him from all the Rankin Bass shows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, um. If somebody is trying to get a hold of you or uh, wants to order any of the books we talked about or any other things we didn't talk about, uh, how would they reach you? Well, um, we have miserbros.com. That's our main site for books and products. Um, M-I-S-E-R-B-R-O-S dot com. Like the heat miser, the snow miser. And then I keep a daily blog at enchantedworldofrankinbass.blogspot.com that I post all kinds of stuff um, related to my collection, which I was on collector's call with 
Lisa Welch, and I hope to do some more oh, cool. <laughs> television work. And um, I just, I'm really into pop culture in general, not just Rankin Bass. You know, I mm-hmm. I have a love for a lot of things, like all the the things you wrote your books about. Cool. You know? <laughs> Thank like you. That, that stuff means as much to me as Rankin Bass. Yeah. You know. Um, it really does. I mean, there there's so many wonderful things from from our generation that um, we had to choose from. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, it's very limited. You know, uh, it's what everybody else is watching. But uh, we had a lot to choose from. You know, there were so many great animated shows and television shows during the 60s and the 70s and I just love all that stuff so uh, you will see that on my blog okay <laughs> like all the different things that I put up and this is airing the beginning of December uh, are there any appearances you're making before the holidays or early next year in 2020 well um, yeah I have a lot of different things I do um, as far as appearances go um I'm going to be at Santa's Village a couple of times this year in East Dundee, Illinois. And um, in 2020, it's the anniversary. I don't know if it's the 30th anniversary or or what it is of Chiller Theater in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I plan to be at both shows, the spring and the fall. And I'm I'm going to try to get some of the puppets there, as I've done in the past. Um, some of the cool original Rankin Bass puppets, um, including Rudolph and Santa, and maybe Skinny Santa. <laughs> um, so the, so that cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'll be a cool convention. Um, and I always do well there. And I don't know. Hopefully, I'll be back at Dragon Con again. There were eighty-six thousand people there. Uh, at the last one so um, I like to do the ones around the country that are focused on um, nostalgia or have the old celebrities that we like you know a lot of them are dying now so it's getting harder and harder to to book them I know (laughs) the Hollywood show just did a signing with Coolio yeah, <laughs> those are the old people like, now. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what happened to like you know Barbara Eden or something, <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, people like Adam West and and all these people are passing away, and it's it's sad, but right, inevitable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, at least you. Uh, like you and I get their words on paper before they go, you know, which I was always happiest about um, on the total television book because all the owners are gone now, you know, and, you know. Yeah. But I am talking... Go ahead. Arthur Rankin and I developed a a friendship. I I felt like I was one of his sons as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it's hard to form bonds like that with people that are, are that instrumental and um, you know I can say that I knew 
he wanted me to continue to do it. Yeah. And uh, and that's another reason why I do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's if we didn't do it, who's going to do it? Exactly. You know? And uh, <laughs> and who's going to do it right too? Yeah. Because <laughs> um, we can see how it's done wrong. <laughs> right. So you know, I appreciate the work you're doing, and I thank you for being on the podcast today. And oh, uh, thanks for having me, and and. Merry Christmas to Merry too. Christmas to you too and uh, make your uh, nose be bright and shiny <laughs> or whatever I Rudolph sure says. <laughs> right. I uh, sure will. All right, have a good day. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening and thank you again Rick Goldschmidt for being my special guest. Episode number 51 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much and have a good night. Pills in the pink electric church. The final flicker of your loom.